what would happen if we designed apps for the low-income market with the same care and attention that we, let's say, did for helping ourselves order food from our couches? We're going to explore that today with an amazing company. This is Using the Whole Whale, a podcast that brings you stories of data and technology in the nonprofit world. My name is George Weiner, your host and the chief whaler of wholewhale.com. Thanks for joining us. This is episode 51, and we have a lot to cover today. We're talking with uh, founder of Propel, Jimmy Chen, uh, an amazing company that decided to say, hey, what if it didn't suck to get and manage your food stamps? I know, a crazy idea. And we're going to walk through how he has, uh, with his CTO, sort of created this vision and made it uh, a reality, how they listen to their audience, how they build their product, and how they're thinking about scale. Uh, Very impressive stuff. I mean, they're working with uh, local governments, and they're scaling a solution that I think is is something we desperately need, not only for the the thinking about how we design for low-income communities, but the actual execution. We have some fun conversations in here. We geek out a little bit, so try not to get too lost, but pay attention to the way and, and the difference that um, uh, Ram, the, the CTO, speaks about the product versus Jimmy, who's more of the vision. Hope you enjoy this one. We're talking with Jimmy Chen, the founder and CEO of Propel, and his CTO, Ram Meta. How's it going, guys? Great. Hey, thanks for having us on today. Uh, absolutely. So we used to we used to have the same co-working space, which is when I first met you. But then recently, you came up on a, a little-known publication called the New York Times. Can you tell us how you ended up uh, going from that like incubation phase to holy cow, you're in the New York Times? And explain what the heck Propel is. Yeah. Let me start with the the latter part. So, uh, Propel makes the food stamp program more user friendly. We are consumer software folks with a background in building consumer software at some of the largest tech companies in the world, like Google and Facebook. Um, We want to bring that same know-how about how to build great software to a program that serves 47 million Americans a year, and that's the food stamp program. Um, We think by making it a lot more user-friendly and easier to access, uh, we can really help shape the future of this program um, and make it a lot more responsive to the people that's trying to serve. as you mentioned, you know, we were in the New York Times last week. That was a really great, uh, really great piece that described just kind of in broad strokes what we do. Um, look, I don't think we are in the big time yet. We're absolutely uh, a scrappy organization that's still really focused on the user and trying to make things better for people on food stamps. And I love that. You started off with a simple idea. Why is it so damn hard for people to get registered for food stamps? Right. And that sort of, like, as you tugged at that thread, how do we serve the, you know, the bottom 10% of uh, our city that led you to this, and why did you choose the the solution you did with regard to you built a, a web platform, you built an app? Uh, can you tell us a little about maybe the, the technology you chose to build with uh, RAM? Um, so maybe to talk about that a little bit is the first thing that Jimmy identified is that it's really hard to sign up for food stamps, right? And then what he showed me is that in, in Pennsylvania, the application for food stamps and a few other services it's all clubbed together, and it's 26 pages long. And you, know, you only need to fill out about half a page for them to legally have to actually follow up with you, but most people wouldn't realize this, and I think it deterred a lot of people from signing up. So the first product that Propel had was Easy Food Stamps, and it was targeted heavily at this, just the sign-up process. 
And then as we continued, Jimmy found another aspect that was applicable to a lot more users and you know, we felt like we could have higher impact there, was balance checking. It's, you, this might be really surprising, but it's unnaturally hard to check your balance in most states if you're on the food stamps program. Um, and this, this product would, we thought would have much more uh, wide appeal, and so we, we shifted from a, a website to this app. Um, the app was a really interesting thing to build because we now needed people's you know, very sensitive information to be able to get their balance. And we didn't want to have to store this information on our servers and expose ourselves to hacking and, and all kinds of compliance issues. So the solution that we, we went with is that we, we treated the user's device as the only truly secure place. It belongs to them, it's their data, and that's where all their data should live. And we simply provide them a, a service uh, on, the, on the back end to the app to be able to do all of the things uh, that they need to do to interact with the food stamps program. Mm -hmm. So this service, each time they log in, would need each of their uh, private credentials, and they would just transit through us to however we use them to actually fetch your balance. But we don't en end up having to save uh, any of this on our side. We don't have to uh, have a notion of a user even. It's anyone who uses our app is our user, and all their information that, that both their, their sensitive information that you actually need to check their balance, as well as their balance and their statements, et cetera. They only always live on the user's device. So nine times out of 10, I advise nonprofits to avoid building an app like the plague, like literally like the plague, because one, they don't have the technical expertise, or let's say sort of instead of or in addition to some of their core services. But this sounds like this was core to the way you realized we needed to build it, one, for data security, two, for access to the market. I mean, how do you guys also adapt that app for the fact that your target audience is probably not using the iPhone, you know, fill in the blank 670 models? Well, the app is only available on Android right now. And we chose specifically and intentionally to start with Android because we think about 80% of our users, that is the 47 million Americans on food stamps, we think about 80% of them that use smartphones use Android phones. And it's because Androids are available at a variety of price points um, that make them far more accessible. That said, there is a sizable population of our potential user base on iPhones, so we're building a version of that and we'll ship that soon. Um, you know, you touched on the app versus website versus other types of products debate, and that's something that we were very intentional and careful about in thinking about what the right way to reach our users was. We ultimately chose an app because we think that the type of engagement pattern we're trying to uh, see with our users, which is multiple times checking your balance per week, we think is, is kind of the ideal state here. Um, we think the average user will want to check their balance every time before they go shopping, which we know uh, based on a lot of market research is about twice a week. And so we're actually seeing this pretty consistently nationally um, among our user base is that a lot of people are opening the app at least twice a week. Um, we think the app makes it, it uh, is a much more conducive kind of product for that type of engagement. And as you mentioned before, you can save those data on individual users so that they don't have to re-enter it on a website. You'd be talking about logging in. You necessarily need to, to have um, that then stored on your you own You have servers. a much better offline experience, I think, is one of the, the key reasons. Um, so it's like, even if you don't get your latest balance, to know what your balance was this morning is, is of certain value. So if you don't have a network or if you're on the subway or something. Or, so this is interesting, too, because you're, you're collecting a lot of information via the app uh, about usage. You just mentioned usage. Can you talk a little bit about how you're using Google Analytics or any other uh, analytic tool uh, to sort of guide how you're tracking users and their behavior to improve the product? 
Yeah, Google Analytics is really the pulse of our product, and it's how we keep track of how people are using our product, which I think is, frankly, a proxy for whether or not we're doing a good job with it or not. If we find that people aren't using our product, we know we're needing to correct something in the way that we're functioning. Um, you know, we've learned quite a bit from Google Analytics already, just basic instrumentation on the app, so we understand which features are being used and which ones aren't. Also, which parts of the, the uh, registration flow are harder than others. Um, we see just overall that when we run ads, we get a spike of users and then some of them come back and some of them don't, which I think is pretty, pretty traditional for an advertising campaign. Um, we also see some things that are specific to our app. For example, we know that many states give out their food stamp deposits on the first of each month or at least in the first 10 days of each month. And so we see our usage spike pretty significantly in that first week and a half of each month, each, pretty much pretty consistently. Mm -hmm. And also, just out of curiosity, do you save any information about remaining balance on query? Um, I'm not sure I follow. So I'm entering in all my personal information. And also, I, I used to register people for food stamps in Philadelphia as part of a project while I was at Penn. So it was like, I'm aware with that like, form and how like, insane it was. But when you actually send that query and it, it comes back, are you saving the, say, I have $51 left? Or is it all just privately held by the app? Just held by the app. And the local. Yeah. Interesting. Um, so it, okay, it makes other aspects really interesting, like advertising, things like that. But you can still do all of that as long as you compute on the phone. Yeah. Um, and that, uh, again, protects against this sort of question of, you know, are we, are we being creepy by saving personally identifiable information? And like information the, yeah. there's no reason for us to have. And the bar for security drops substantially. You don't, your network doesn't have to be as nearly as secure your data centers because it's as, unless someone can actually tap into live traffic coming and going, mm -hmm. they can't really do anything. There's, it's not, there's nowhere for them to, to find things. Yeah, you'd have to go one by one and chase down that. Yeah. That I'm curious, as you look through patterns, usage of behavior, what was like one thing that really surprised the heck out of you? You're like, what are people doing? Why is like Tuesday afternoon going nuts? Well, when we surveyed our users, one of the things we asked them is how many of you have referred somebody else to the app? We, uh, we know this is a big um, and very common path of growth for a lot of consumer apps that you refer your friends, or the app asks you to refer your friends. We don't currently ask our users to refer anybody or to share the app with anyone, but still 63% of our users told us that they had already shared this with a friend, and 23% told us that they planned to in the future. So those numbers combined, I think, uh, tell us that we're pointed in the right direction, that we're building something that's useful enough that people are willing to share it with their friends and family, which frankly is a pretty high bar. If you think of the different products that you share with your friends and family, it's got to be pretty good for you to take the time to put your own reputation on the line for somebody else. Yeah, and that's a, the net promoter score when you're talking about would you share this with a friend being the most critical piece of information that is a, a factor right. of the quality of what you've created. That's right. If you were to take this question as a net promoter score, we'd have eight and a half. Mm -hmm. Can you explain what a net promoter score is? What does that mean as an eight and a half? Oh, sure. Well, uh, I should first say that our net promoter score isn't the most rigorous. It was just a, a really quick user survey that we ran and not quite of the exact form, but the net promoter score, as I understand it, um, in the marketing world is specifically the answer to the question, would you recommend this service to someone else? Um, and it's answered on a scale of one to 10. It's generally considered that eights, nines, and tens, or is it nines and tens, are, are considered very good. Uh, and then everything else considered is considered not as good. Yeah, you really want to be in that high percentile. Right. Because uh, otherwise you have something wrong. Uh, and that can speak to your word of mouth, your viral uh, potential um, for, for the app. On the side of impact, which obviously this is why you've created this, on the side of impact, how many, let's say, families have you registered uh, thus far in, in Pennsylvania? 
Well, uh, the app is actually, so uh, let me talk about two ways that we think about impact. The first is food stamps enrollment, as Ram mentioned, that's through easyfoodstamps.com. And we've registered about 500 families in food stamps over the course of the last two years through that, uh, through that product. Um, the other product, Fresh EBT, which is what we've just been talking about around how people check their balance and find out how much they have left in benefits, mm-hmm. has about uh, 9,000 people who've downloaded the app, and that's across the country. Oh, because you can do it across the country. The enrollment right. is just focused on Pennsylvania for now. That's right. So geographically, we're limited to Pennsylvania for food stamps enrollment, but we're not geographically limited for food stamps uh, checking of balances. Mm-hmm. And what period of time have you been able to acquire the, the 2,000 uh, registered households? Uh, I apologize. That was that was uh, that was 500 registered households 500. signed up for food stamps. Gotcha. And about 9,000 who have registered for the app, who've downloaded the app. 500 registered and what is the limiting factor to your growth do you feel like and let's just stick with the the first part registering families uh so registration yeah this is signing people up for food stamps uh it's a pretty complicated process that requires close communication with different state government agencies in order for us to do it effectively Um, and so i think the biggest hurdle there is really just uh you know helping people navigate the variety of different kind of bureaucratic barriers that they have to face um, when enrolling in food stamps Mm-hmm. And then for the, the EBT checking uh, of your of your food stamp amount allotment, how much? Uh, what is the limiting factor? Why is nine thousand not ninety thousand people? <laughs> uh, we think it's going to be ninety thousand really soon. We think. Uh, Look, I think we're really excited about the potential for this product, and we think that everyone on food stamps who has a smartphone in America should be using it. Um, We think we're going to get closer and closer to that vision as the months go on. Um, That product is a little bit newer. We've only been working on it for the last few months. And so I think we see our initial user growth as validation that we're onto something interesting. In the next few months, we'll be proving out how we can scale that up. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, it is really exciting to say, hey, we can not only help you check your balance, but I'm sure people listening right now are like, holy cow, if you actually had that sort of uh, point of sale moment where you're thinking about uh, the most food insecure people in in food deserts, like the ability to say, oh my, you know, do you know that this area has this type of um, resource in it, this type of nutrition information? Uh, Has any of that started to bubble up in in your planning? It has. Uh, You know, our core value proposition for the app is just find out how much you have left on food stamps. Right, and we think that's going to stay the same. But the, the direction that we're shifting with this is not just find out how much you have left, but also try to get try to stretch your dollars. Right, how do we help you gain the most value from your dollars? And how do we turn this ultimately into a poverty fighting platform? How do we connect people on government benefits to the different services and organizations they need to have a better financial life? So we see a bunch of different verticals and ways we can make that happen. We can help people save money on their daily grocery purchases by partnering with grocery stores, by partnering with retailers, by partnering with other organizations where where they can get discounts and spend their money. Um, We can use it as a communication channel between them and other organizations that are trying to serve them by making them more financially healthy. So some of these are financial services firms, some of these are nonprofits, some of these are food pantries, some of these are government agencies. So now I'll switch it back to the CTO role who's like, oh boy, you just hear those features start to like just tick, 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 tick up. Uh, can you talk to us a little bit about as you hear the, the visionary CEO talk about all the awesome stuff that, that's going to come down the pike? How do you balance that with the, the technical debt that you're obviously taking on the second you push code? So, so far, we've been really fortunate in that uh, we've been able to con- control the timeline of when we release things. So we haven't, in my opinion, accumulated too much technical debt. We've also had like fantastic help on the QA side, and Jimmy and our other um, 
I would say prominent member Jeff has taken a big role there. And it, it was really interesting because as we scaled up the, the, the app uh, to all 50 states, we, we couldn't get volunteers from each of the 50 states. So a lot of times we'd release and, and cross our fingers and hope that someone would pick it up from that state and sign on and we would know that it, it works there. Um, and so that, that process was tumultuous. And, and since we were doing it with such a small team, we, we really bolstered our, our tools usage. Like we use Sentry, Jenkins, and all of these things really well, so we're fully automated in terms of our pushes, anything that needs to happen uh, in any kind of you know, uh, timely fashion, we, we move to Jenkins. Uh, even things such as like keeping our Twilio recordings and things like that, uh, uh, Trim, you know, Jenkins does all of that for us. So having been diligent about that, I, I feel like we're in a good position to take on more features. Um, and I, I think the... The decision for us, the way we, we treat our data, makes it so that we have to be very deliberate about what features we build and, and what we choose to store and how, how, how we use it. So we've always been a little bit ahead of the curve in terms of what we've wanted to do and what we've been able to launch so far. Um, and I think not forcing ourselves to push things when they weren't ready have, have made, uh, has made life a lot easier. And you know that's easy to say right now, and it's mostly because the business was able to, to scale gracefully. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you didn't have like a, a major launch announcement. Launching in all 50 states tomorrow. Exactly. The mayors of each region will be announcing it and everyone hitting your servers at the same time. So you have the luxury of time. You have the luxury of a solid uh, QA process, an internal team that can test it uh, for your releases. How, uh, how frequently do you, do you all release? Um, sometimes multiple times a day, sometimes at least once a week, sometimes more often. Uh, for the client, the app itself, We've, we've made, I think, like three releases in two days at one point. Um, and these weren't bug fix releases. These were actual like, features that we built or improvements that we, we made. Um, for the, the server, we, we, we are on a completely continuously integrated system. So anytime any code is pushed to our master branch, it goes out to production. The, it's easy to do when we're so small because every person who pushes code is kind of trusted. Mm-hmm. Um, as we scale out, I think just a few things I would probably do our code review and a more automated QA process before testing. But I think um, the tools available today to, to automate are phenomenal. I mean, a few years ago, you didn't have Ansible, you didn't have Docker, Vagrant wasn't quite as good as it is today. Um, Jenkins has always been there for you, but if you didn't have all these other things to, to use them with, it, you kind of felt like you were reinventing the wheel for a lot of common tasks all the time. I think. Today, things are a lot easier to, to run a fairly sophisticated deployment as a very small team. Yeah, you're, you're bouncing along through. I'm sure a lot of people are like, what the heck is a vagrant? Why would you want him wandering around your code? Um, <laughs> to get back to a, a high level here, as around, can you describe Jenkins to me as though I were a nine-year-old? Well, so Jenkins is my butler. Um, <laughs> You can say literally. He, so anything that I need to do that I uh, can describe completely and that needs to happen on a schedule that uh, someone else needs to be able to. So back in the day at Google, they had this idea of a one-click build, which I think people take for granted now, which is someone can go to a web interface and click a button, and it just produces, moves code for you and puts it in the right places. It orchestrates things for you. Well, you know, people used to love building their own tool, tools to do that, and some you know, smart person, I think it was a Japanese person who forked Hudson, uh, built this thing called Jenkins. And it it's fulfills all of these needs, in my opinion. Um, it, it can handle moving your code to production, it can handle things that need to happen on a schedule, it can handle um, any miscellaneous tasks that you can think of that you might need to do every once in a while, that um, maybe clearing caches or, or, 
or testing things for you. Anything that you can think of that you need an intern to do for you, if you have the time and um, to configure Jenkins to do it for you, it will. It, it's a fantastic butler. I would take Jenkins or Alfred any day. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think that's, it's an invaluable team tool for a small team. All right, I'm sold. Nine-year-old me is sold. <laughs> you talked about moving in like, and working with the community, and obviously to build a tool this sensitive, uh, you, you had to put boots on the ground. You actually went out there. Talk to us some about your like, real community user testing and uh, then how you ended up working with the government, which is you know, the antithesis of something easy to work with and also I think was one of the reasons you actually had to go to, to Pennsylvania. Yeah, um, we are in a situation where we're building a product where we are not the end users. So none of the people who work at, at Propel uh, are currently receiving food stamps. And so for us to build a product that's useful for real people, we've got to constantly stay in touch with our users and our potential users to get a better sense of what their actual needs are and to make sure that we're not just guessing and, and guessing wrong about what product is useful for them. So we, we spend more time doing user research, I would say, than most firms of our size probably do. Um, we came up with this idea of balance checking and, and you know helping people manage their SNAP benefits. Um, you know, actually through a user test, we were uh, this is Jeff and I were at a grocery store in Philadelphia helping people sign up for food stamps, and we talked to people all afternoon about signing up for food stamps. And um, one thing that we heard time and again from folks was, "Oh, thank you for your offer, but I'm actually already signed up. I'm here trying to spend my benefits." And so that naturally led us down the hole of like, well, what is it actually like to spend food stamp benefits at a store? And I think that led us to the specific product idea that we had today. So I think it, you know, our users are our our biggest asset, and they're the thing, you know, they're they're the reason we're able to to build something that's useful. It's such a simple and really brilliant because of its simplicity. Focus on a need that you saw in the community that only would have come up again if you were there talking to people on the ground. Uh, how do you? not lose touch with that as you know you're, you're talking about touching on different surveys and talking with your community how do you kind of come back and say we've gotten too too much into our sort of brooklyn tech <laughs> vibe and we got to get back uh, back out there and talk to our users yeah that's the thing we have to be constantly aware of as a company as we grow in scale so part of it is hiring right part of it is like looking for people to join our team who believe in the mission and who have the same type of approach of focusing on users as we as we expand the mission um, and part of it is just constantly being vigilant about this, right? Is that I think like ultimately it's going to be bad for the health of the company if we lose touch with our users. As fun as it as, as it's going to be to sit in a nice air conditioned office and you know just stare at our computer screens all day. Uh, fundamentally, this is a company that's going to fail if we don't get out and you know get out and talk to our users as frequently as we can. Mm. The piece that uh, is amazing to me is uh, you had to deal with you know, one of the most difficult institutions in our known universe, which is the government, uh, to get <laughs> something done. Uh, what was that process? What did it look like? And how has it shaped the product so far? Well, first, let me, let me point out that when you hear Ram talking about all of our deployment processes and our automation processes and all the different tools that he's using to build our software, that is our secret sauce, right? That is the reason that our, that our company exists, because we can apply modern software development tools that are used by you know, a variety of different startups in Silicon Valley to build software, but we can apply it to a government problem. 
um, and a problem that's traditionally worked on by governments and nonprofits, we can apply our solution in a non in a, a private sector way that allows us to have the best of both worlds, where we can use the best and breed tools from the private sector to solve a problem that's traditionally worked on by the public sector. So I think that's really why we exist as an organization, is we see that you know there's been a need that has arisen out of kind of frankly the the uh, shortcomings of what the government's able to provide for people on food stamps, then we can solve it in a purely private sector way without having to, you know, um, to, to, to sell official software to government. Um, you know, we've worked with government in a variety of ways in the past. The government we work with most closely has been the Philadelphia Mayor's Office. Um, we did a program that was sponsored by a Bloomberg Philanthropies grant there in late 2014, which was a really great opportunity for us to get to know the folks um, in the Mayor's Office. Mm-hmm. So you kind of had that handshake initially that got you in the door and a trusted relationship. You were allowed to run an experiment which worked and then you could build on that success and that trust, it seems like. That's right. I mean, a big part of it was also just understanding what their priorities are because in our world, they're a really big constituent of our software as well. They're like the government is fundamentally in charge of running and administering the food stamp program at all levels. And so for us to build great software, we not only have to understand our users, we have to understand how the government works and how we can um, best interface to them. Mm-hmm. Kind of drives me nuts, though, thinking about the amount of money I know has just been in the ecosystem, at least for, you know, for the last decade, trying to deal with the food insecure, trying to deal with food stamp implementation. Uh, it really seems like just to speak honestly, a system that was designed to be inefficient, to slow people down from applying. So when I ask this question, it's a little leading, like, what do you feel has stopped the government from implementing this? They have got, like, no offense, a lot more money than you guys do. And they can, like, probably afford a lot more uh, rounds than you than you can. I mean, you're one, you, you are a snowflake, obviously. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, however, <laughs> they can make it, you know, a snowstorm. How come they haven't gotten to this? Um, you know, I don't think it's because they don't care, and I don't think it's because they don't try. I think, uh, for me, it is because I think the institutional structures that are in place uh, prevent their developers and their team from doing the types of things that Ron was just talking about. Right. If you, if you hear Ron talk about our stack, that is dramatically different than any stack that any government engineer is working on. And that's due to a variety of reasons. There's not it's a single thing to be able to pin, to pin down on that. But um, the results of, of years and years of legislation and all these measures around what tools are approved and which ones aren't and uh, you know, all, these, all these different government requirements and standards has made it so that the best in breed tools in private sector software development generally are not used or not used immediately uh, by folks building software for the public sector. And so, you know, tooling is definitely one piece. I'd say another piece is just kind of where the focus is. The food stamp program is a big, complex uh, system that has a lot of different constituents in it. The government's a constituent. Grocery stores are a constituent. You know, there's legislators, there's, there's public opinion, there's press, all these different things. Um, we founded Propel with the idea that food stamp recipients and the, the clients themselves were the most important constituent and that we were going to build our software with them as, like, first and foremost as the user. Um, and I'm not saying that government doesn't care about uh, or doesn't also prioritize those clients, but they've got a variety of other demands. They've got taxpayers. They've got, you know, they've got bosses. They've got a whole organization and structure. They've got the USDA, all very well-meaning, smart, talented folks, but with a lot more, you know, a lot more complexity around their decisions. You mentioned that there's a sort of like special sauce, like a magic element of coming from the private sector 
I feel like this easily could have been a, a non-profit, a 501c3 organization. And it's interesting because I, you know, in Creating Whole Whale also dealt with the same type of, we have a very socially minded mission, right. though we look like on paper a digital agency, we're trying to inform and train nonprofits to close the knowledge gap. I'm curious, what influenced your decision to go one way versus the other when you were founding? I think it was really two things that pushed us towards being a for-profit company. The first is being able to raise for-profit capital. So we think one of the tools that actually helps for-profit startups grow really quickly is the infusion of capital that can come from venture capitalists um, and, and folks in Silicon Valley and elsewhere that help these companies grow really quickly. So that's, that's what allows you know, a small startup to grow really rapidly by hiring you know, 20 software engineers or hiring a large team because they were able to raise a large round. Um, and that's an opportunity that being a for-profit affords us. I think the second one is really we aspire to build a business model that's completely in line with our social impact, such that you can't have one without the other. And I think that if we can make that happen, we can build a self-sustaining type of engine that isn't reliant on investors or donors or any other source, but is completely self-funded. And we think that's the strongest type of engine you can build is one that's like fueled by the economics. To play devil's advocate, though, being fueled by the economics, by being beholden to shareholders and also investors, you know, how do you avoid that, uh, that temptation and potential inevitable pull toward, well, wait a minute, we could suddenly take a bite out of payday loans, to, you know, take a picture of your check, send it to us, and we'll only take 14% of your money from you. Like, why isn't that, uh, is that a concern of yours and how do you address it? We want to be beholden to the right investors and to the right shareholders. And so we've taken money in this first round from only investors that really believe in our social mission as well as our company mission. Um, so I think that's a big piece of it. I think another piece of it is, as I mentioned before, just hiring and DNA for the company. Look, I think if we were looking to get rich, uh, you know, we wouldn't have started a food stamp company. I think there are lots of other like, opportunities for you to get rich in software. Um, that's explicitly not why we started this company. We want to build it as a for-profit because we think that's a great way for it to scale. How are you going to make money? We think the product we're building, Fresh EBT, is going to be a really great opportunity for organizations to reach people on food stamps. I mentioned before the grocery store angle. So $70 billion is spent each year through food stamps into the grocery industry. That's about 12% of the American grocery industry each year comes from food stamps. Um, and if you ever go to a grocery store and see a sign that says food stamps accepted here or EBT uh, taken here, so grocers put up those signs because they realize that a lot of money is coming from this program and they want it to be spent in their stores. But that sign's all they've got because they've got no other digital means to attract those types of shoppers into their stores who we think that they should value. And so what we're providing is a way to connect Folks who have $70 billion in purchasing power for groceries with the grocery stores that provide them high-quality products. Just curious, does Amazon take uh, EBT? <laughs> they don't right now. I use the words right now. That's interesting. Talk to me about, now you know, as we kind of get toward the end here, talk to me about what success looks like uh, for your company. Well, maybe I'll let Ram talk a little bit about what, what that is. Um, maybe you should handle this. <laughs> All right, sure. so technically, I'll break it up. Yeah. Fair, fair play here. Uh, what does success look like from the technical end to support the vision of where you see this? Maybe I'll, I'll uh, talk about a little bit about what you were talking about before, the nonprofit angle, right? Because this yeah. was something that was very important to me, and I, I think that's, that fits into us being successful very much. So when we were with just Easy Food Stamps and trying to, to come up with the, the right model behind it, uh, the right business model and the right like, uh, idea to, go, to run with, 
I think I was pushing very hard to make it a nonprofit, and then uh, at the time we were very small. I think it was just the two of us, and Jimmy held out, and he, he said, "We should be able to find a way to make this work because we have the right people, and you're here, and I'm here, and we're not here to make money. And just because we have a C corp doesn't mean we can actually have the right business model that actually makes it so that us maximizing profits also is the best thing for our customers. In this case, food stamps recipients, right?" And I made a lot of arguments similar to the ones that you did. And then I'm very pleased to say that you know he's conclusively won that battle. Like every one of the arguments he he made has panned out. I mean, we've, recruiting has been substantially easier with this kind of social mindset because people, you know, really talented people approach you, they find seek you out, and they really want to work on this problem. So we, we find ourselves being even more selective than I've been at previous companies where we've been trying to hire elite teams. Um, I think I think in terms of the business model. Through a lot of hard work, Jimmy definitely found something that's it's really incredible. It's a need that people that people have. It was a problem that I think is uh, complicated enough to solve that you know it's not like anyone could have done it. Um, and yeah, so I, I think success to me would be if if the, if that conversation that we had around trying to build a business around something that that has um, this much social value, if that pans out, that would be a very successful outcome for me. If you want to think about the experience of somebody on food stamps in 2016, one thing uh, that you have to remember is that actually most folks who are even below the poverty line in 2016 have access to smartphones. And so if you think about what that user's experience is like using free apps like Facebook and Twitter and Google and Instagram and you know playing games and texting their friends, you know, we think that when that person has to go navigate their food stamp benefits by either applying for food stamps or checking their balance or understanding you know, the status of their application or seeing what their transaction history is, we think they get transported to kind of a different world. They get taken to 1995 where you have to call a phone line to get your balance or you have to go fill out a 26-page form to apply for a thing. Um, in one way, I think one of the goals of what we're doing at Propel is to bring the food stamp program into the modern age. How do we make the program feel like, you know, like it, it, it was crafted with the same amount of care that went into a product like Facebook or like Google or like Twitter? How do we bring that rigor of software development and user focus to a program that is frankly extremely important? Yeah, I'd love that. Taking a step back, looking at the nonprofit sector, question to both of you, if you had a magic wand and it could change one thing, uh, a process or a product or an approach that the nonprofit sector took, uh, to solving uh, the social issues they face, what would that magic uh, what would that magic wand do? So I'll start with you, Ram. I mean, if it would make all of the government surfaces not work on Web 1.0 technology, <laughs> that would be incredible. <laughs> um, but that's not happening anytime soon. What does that What does that mean? What does What does Web 1.0 mean? You know, to think, you? think to me, it means a, a single page application versus you know, pure. Uh, HTML and HTTP-based applications as they existed in the past. And I think it's much more of a, a user experience thing. Think Gmail versus think like any government website that you've used in, in the recent past. Um, think your bank website, some of the more modern ones, a lot of the fintech stuff is still stuck in the way back in the day stuff. But it, it feels like the, you know, I think as Jimmy mentioned, the, the desire to stay within some kind of the confines of something that you know works versus using this amazing technology that's been invented in the last, I would say, five to ten years. Um, I think it's a shame that people don't use more of it. I, th I think they've solved some of the most difficult problems around uh, building applications and uh, websites that have come up over the last ten years. Um, 
Yeah, I think if I could if I could get everyone to stop using ancient technology, that would be awesome. But to play devil's advocate, do you really think it's likely, given the government's track record on building web technologies, that they're they're going to go that route? Don't you feel hasn't it, the train has left the station? Shouldn't it be the government that just says, "Hey, here are some APIs to like integrate with our services. We're done designing." We're I was about to, yeah, I was about to say it's like if they the thing is you know having spoken to some people who've worked with either government APIs or even financial service APIs, right? They're they're horrible. I mean, I've. I, I know, I know we have no ties to them, so I can probably say this. I've heard Reuters API is like the worst API that any engineer has ever had the displeasure of laying <laughs> a finger on. And the documentation is some, you know, probably close to a thousand pages is what I've heard. But I mean, if you need that much documentation around your API, something's really wrong with it, right? So I think that just having an API wouldn't be sufficient unless their, their engineering practices evolved with it substantially because, you know, a bad API doesn't help very much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so a lot, lot of steps there. I just, uh, it's an interesting conversation. All right, magic wand that would solve somehow state by state the issues of APIs and proper data sharing. Yeah, that would be nice. <laughs> and allowing the private sector to similarly build to these solutions. I think if the government just, I, I think that, that, would, that would be something that I, I would imagine happening, the government making it easier for the private sector to contribute by opening up some APIs. But we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> All right, same question, Jim. I would give every nonprofit and government organization a technical co-founder. Uh, this magic wand would transport us back in time to when the organization was founded. It would put a native software developer on that team. Um, I think the world that we're in right now is one in which most organizations require some kind of technical product in order to be successful. Um, and so having that DNA instilled from the start, I think, uh, I've seen work before, and I, th I think I think is a, a thing that we value a lot here at Propel that we have for ourselves. What would Propel look like had you not found Ram when you did? Let's say he joined you today. Yeah, I think it would have been uh, it would have been really tough because I think uh, you know our value proposition would be different. We'd be searching for something else that we could provide because if we're talking about you know building software with the most modern tools and bringing this program up to modern software standards, you know, I don't think we would be able to do it alone. Uh, I think it requires, you know, requires a, an uncommon skill set to, to bring that to the table. So your magic wand would transport, similar to Back to the Future style and DeLorean, technical founders back to <laughs> when people were starting their organizations. That's a good or it would wand. magically like it would magically uh, like bring technical powers to the founders of the, of the, the, the original founders of the, of the organization. So like, I think there are lots of great organizations across the country doing great work, especially as nonprofits. Um, but you know, the, some of the ones that I've seen that have been the most successful over the past few years have tech really deep in their DNA, and I think it, it's allowed them to shift to, to the tech world uh, quite a bit more seamlessly. Awesome points. All right, as we wrap up, uh, how do people find you? How do people help you? Uh, please visit us on the web at joinpropel.com, and there's a information there. There's our contact information. Uh, we have an info at joinpropel.com email address where you can please you know, send us thoughts, feedback, or ideas. Um, we're also on Twitter at EasyFoodStamps. All right, guys. Thanks for taking the time. I'll let you get back to your work. Thank you, George. Thanks a lot, George. love what these guys are doing. They are solving a problem. They said, look, 
the food stamp system sucks. We can do so much better. Isn't that how some of our greatest ideas come about? But they chose the focus instead of saying, let's help, you know, George get a, get alcohol ordered more quickly from his apartment in Park Slope. Instead, they said, you know what? What if it were easier to check your balance in food stamps? What if it were easier to manage the food stamp process? The two big things that I take away from this, actually, one is the true importance of that technical co-founder. You can see that Jimmy absolutely has the vision and the care and the attention. And then you have Ram there with the ability to create the right types of models and the right types uh, of infrastructure to scale this thing. It's fantastic. And then number two is think about how amazing it is that they can actually just build something and then scale it because the cities have opened up the right types of APIs and the right types of data and they're willing to work with an entrepreneur like Jimmy. And, and that gives me hope, you know, when I see, you know, the epic failures that we have in the last uh, decade in the government trying to, to build infrastructure technically. Um, you know, healthcare.gov is the, the gleaming example of, boy, we can build a website. But if you flip it on its head and say, look, let's just make sure we have the raw ingredients built the right way, meaning the APIs and the open data and the things that, you know, data.gov offer with open data sets. And you see with uh, cities opening up the ability to interact with the city as like a living, breathing digital organism, you can get amazing advances so quickly with, you know, just this one podcast, you can see how far that Jimmy can potentially take this uh, to really solve a problem with regard to how people are trying to access their food and the many different ideas uh, that can come of it. So ultimately, the, the homework here is to, to be inspired, play around with uh, maybe some of the terms you heard, uh, explore what maybe uh, open data uh, can offer your organization as you're dealing with uh, local issues. And uh, absolutely, if you want to check them out, you know where to find them. Uh, our resources today, as always, wholewhale.com slash podcast. And this is episode 51. Thanks for joining us. This has been Using the Whole Whale. For more resources on today's show, please visit wholewhale.com slash podcast and consider following us on Twitter at Whole Whale. And thanks for joining us. Today's music brought to you by Greg Thomas. Check him out online, find his music, play it on repeat as I tend to do. And also thanks to those of you who, uh, for our 50th episode, did run online and, and give us a rating on iTunes. It definitely helped, and I love reading them. Uh, we put a lot of love and energy into the podcast, so it's always nice to, to hear from you. 